For longer than anyone can remember, farmers and backyard growers have saved seeds. They have kept heirloom seeds alive and share them with other like-minded growers. These are seeds from plants saved because they grow well in your region and they taste good. Saving these seeds is the mission of the Seed Savers Exchange. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Mike Bollinger, Executive Director of Seed Savers Exchange. Mike has diverse experience in agriculture, in farming design, farm management, organics, and farm education. So Mike, welcome to Tip of the Tongue. Thanks, Liz. I'm uh, honored to be here. So I know that you haven't been in this position as Executive Director of Seed Savers very long, but I know you also have experience with Seed Savers before you took this position. Why don't you tell us a little bit about coming on as the executive director and what you can pull into that role from your experience with Seed Savers and elsewhere. Yeah. um, Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to that a little bit. I am new to my role as executive director here at Seed Savers Exchange, kind of coming on board at the end of September of 2022. So a little over four months. And although I'm new to this role, I have a story history with Seed Savers Exchange. And before Um, I really was familiar with the organization and its work. I was an undergraduate student at a local liberal arts college here in Decorah, Iowa, called Luther College. And Kent and Diane Whaley, the co-founders of Seed Savers Exchange, had a daughter that was in school there at the same time. And so Carrie would bring us out here uh, to the property, which is now 890 acres, to be able to explore and walk around in the wintertime. We would, you know, skate on the creek and you know, we'd walk through the orchards and and some of those things. But my wife, Katie, and I moved back to Decorah after having moved around as young folks trying to kind of figure out what we wanted to do in life and finding that um, organic farming and, and education was a piece of that. But with young children running a farm and working at the Chicago Botanic Garden in Chicago wasn't the, the long-term path for us. And so we moved back to Decorah in 2009, had a seven acre property, a little homestead, and we're starting a small, you know, diversified fruit and vegetable farm, um, feeding into local farmers markets and things like that. And we had the opportunity to be able to start growing some seedlings for Seed Savers Exchange for a plant sale that they do at the visitor center. And over time, you know, we, we started growing garlic for them as a contract producer over time as well. We grew some squash and some watermelon, a few different varieties, eventually working with Aaron Whaley when he, their son, their oldest son, when he started his own company, doing some trialing and things like that. And so have now for more than a decade been involved with Seed Savers Exchange in, in a multitude of capacities and now in a new way as executive director here. So 
Yeah, I mean, as a you know, a nonprofit organization focused on agriculture and stewardship of seeds, the farming background that I have, as well as just a working understanding tangentially of of the organization, has you know put me in a really good place to be able to kind of sit here in in this spot now uh, with some understanding of the work that the organization has done historically, and you know, conversations with folks. That I've known over time, kind of thinking about where we could have the biggest impact moving forward. So it's an exciting time here at the organization. The work is more important than than ever, and I'm glad to be a part of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Seed Savers Exchange is? Yeah, so I guess the place to logically start in my mind is just with the mission. Seed Savers Exchange stewards America's culturally diverse and endangered garden and food crop legacy. <laughs> For present and future future generations, we educate, we connect people through collecting seed, regenerating seed, sharing heirloom and open pollinated seeds, you know, plants and and stories. Um, It is an organization, again, a nonprofit organization that has been in existence since 1975. So nearly 50 years of working to steward seeds and stories and community focusing on diverse home gardeners across the country. But it started really with two two different varieties of seeds with Diane Whaley, one of the co-founders, just 30 minutes south of Decorah, a small town Festina on her grandparents' farm. It was the Grandpa Ott's Morning Glory flower and the German pink tomato. And these are two varieties that her family had stewarded since the 1800s and when they moved to the United States from Bavaria and really when Diane was getting married and you know moving to Missouri and she had asked if she could take a couple of seeds from these these two things that her family had stewarded and her grandparents you know welcomed the opportunity to be able to pass these on Um, and shortly thereafter her grandfather was terminally ill and Diane kind of came to the realization that like wow I'm here I am with these seeds. I'm stewarding these. Like if I, if something goes wrong, right? Like what happens to these things that have been in my family for, for generations? Um, and as her and Kent really kind of dug into that and thought about, you know, what, what that means to be able to have these varieties and this connection to history and the importance of this, you know, they figured that there must be other people that are in that same place. And, and so they started reaching out. I mean, they, she put an advertisement in a in a Mother Earth News and Long Word Ho and you know some of these magazines at the time that were talking about homesteading and gardening and growing food and and just said like are there other people out here that are you know interested in doing this that are connecting that you know that can we build a network of folks that are interested in collecting and stewarding these seeds and that was really the beginning of the of the organization uh, that first. That first year, there were less than 30 people that had responded to that post, that call for um, for connection and communication around seed. You know, the next year it was, you know, o- almost 150 people in 1976, you know, um, and it has grown tremendously since then. I mean, that had, that that initial call was the foundation of Seed Savers Exchange. And it was really the idea of this exchange. Like, can we come together? And Diane and Kent would put together a, a newsletter of all of the varieties that had been collected and sent to them that were then available to other people at no charge. 
And so now that is a, that exchange still exists, right? Those publications are are here and ready for distribution as well as, you know, with our membership. I mean, we have hundreds of listers and, you know, almost 18,000 varieties of seed that are available within that. The publication is called the yearbook, but the work is the exchange. So why is this important? I mean, it's important. I mean, if, if we think about all the conversations that we hear, you know, lately in the news, I mean, it's it's all over the place. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the rapid loss of genetic biodiversity, if we're talking about climate change and the issues that we're seeing as our environment changes, right? And if we think about, you know, one of the latest examples with COVID, I mean, the fragility of our of our food system, right? I mean, we're thinking about food coming from all of these different parts in the country. And when, you know, transportation systems and production systems, you know, start to break down, you know, food food isn't available, right? And so if we can think about the ability to be able to, you know, steward uh, seeds and food crops in community, there's there's stability there, you know, for current generations and also for future generations. But why is it that biodiversity is so important? Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a great question. I mean, there's there's a tremendous number of reasons that that biodiversity is important. I mean, we can we can look at the cultural implications of that. I mean, each of these you know varieties are things that carry with them a story of um, of our heritage of humanity, right? And so there's a connection there to the environment. There's a connection there to our food and our um, yeah our our viability as uh, as consumers of the things that we're that we're growing. Um, if we're thinking about environmental change. Right. I mean, we are looking at uh, a decreasing number of varieties of lettuce or beans or, or peas. Right. And there's there's a risk that's associated with a small genetic pool of, of any one of these things. I mean, if we had a year where, um, you know, drought is a concern. Right. I mean, one variety of, of pea may not do well with uh, with little rain, but another one may. Right. And so in this diversity of genetics, uh, we have the capacity to be able to withstand this environmental change. So do you, does Seed Savers Exchange work with other seed saving organizations around the world? Yes, yes, we absolutely do. I think a really good example of that um, would be a, a project that we're currently collaborate, collaborating on called the Heirloom Collard Project. It is a, is, is a network of uh, multiple organizations. Um, we look at its Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, Seed Savers Exchange, Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance, Utopian Seed Project, the Working Food Group, so this is an effort that is really talking about and looking at specifically the importance of a diversity of collard varieties. And so looking at that as a staple food crop um, that is originated from another part of the world, found its way here, and we are working to be able to um, grow out these varieties in multiple locations throughout the United States as a way to be able to highlight the value of collard as a food crop, as well as the diversity uh, of those varieties. And there's more than 60 varieties of collards. You probably see one in the grocery store. 
and and getting these into gardens so that people can better understand um, the value of collards as a crop, the importance of the, the varieties in regions throughout the United States, as well as then the ability to be able to save seed from the, some of these crops and then to be able to pass them on for greater stewardship. So one of the things that I find irksome is that when big agriculture is trying to manipulate seeds, and I'm not talking about genetic engineering, I'm just talking about regular genetics and breeding of the seeds, it's almost always done to make things easier to ship and Mm -hmm. not at all related to whether it tastes good. Now, people are trying to have tomatoes that taste good. But it's really easy to find tomatoes that are just terrible, but they ship really well. So how how does that enter into any of this? Like, do you wind up saving any varieties that have become standard in big agriculture? Are you just looking for seeds that are more what we call heirloom in the popular parlance? Well, I mean, Seed Savers Exchange, you know, at the moment really is looking specifically at heirloom and open pollinated seeds. So we're, you know, something that has been stewarded in the United States for for more than 20 years. Um, Something that, again, is open pollinated. So it has the ability to be able to be regenerated in your own gardens. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, there's great value to be able to be in a place where you grow a, a paragon tomato in your garden and you take some of you know some of those fruit and you process that seed and you have it for the next year whereas as you know as you're speaking to um you know within the consolidation of the of the larger seed market but also really this idea of you know the technological advances that we gain through hybridization and that process, you know, like like you said, um, you know, many of the considerations there are uniformity, whether that be for transportation, whether that be for shelf life, whether that be for visual appeal, Mm -hmm. right? And and a lot of times, uh, in most cases, those those aren't the considerations when you're talking about heirloom and open pollinated varieties. The, The crops that were stewarded in people's gardens were for a culinary purpose, right? Maybe you grew, you know, two, you know, two varieties of tomatoes that were specifically meant for canning. And one of them, uh, you know, the, say your plum tomato had a, you know, was, was part of that because it had a higher acidic value. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, or whether you're looking at a bean that was, you know, specifically meant for, you know, for as a dry bean, right, for for storage. And so really it was, you know, so much of what we have here, what we have in our catalog, what's listed on the exchange, you know, are crops that people are growing for food for consideration of, you know, not transportation, right, not for shelf life but really for nutritive value, for flavor, uh, for specific dishes and that have been stewarded over, stewarded over time. So at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, we are developing a garden that is designed to show people how foods that have been brought, whatever is native to the Americas, but also the foods that were brought from other continents with immigrants or others um, and how that has really affected the food of the South and kind of defined the food of the South. We find, for example, we've planted in in our garden sassafras trees because 
most people who even are American have never seen a sassafras tree and they are unaware of what filet is. And um, so they, they'll always say, what, what is it? Where does it come from? And we say it comes from a sassafras tree and it's native to America. And we have um, them planted in our yard. So people get to see the interesting leaves that they have, as well as to see what they smell like and um, what the roots smell like. And um, uh, so we're, we're really trying to have an Africa section, a Europe section, an American section. And then also there are all of the Asian foods that came either directly from Asia or came to America through Europe or Africa into, into America. Um, and, and so we can't grow everything because it's way too hot and damp for everything, but we are only the Southern food and beverage museum. So we're not trying to say this is what people eat in Minnesota or anything. Um, so, but it's a very interesting exercise. We think it's important as a museum to do this and have this extension of the education from looking at artifacts to the actual foods themselves. But it's a, a big thing for a little museum to do. So we depend on a lot of really excellent volunteers that help us. Once yeah, you put your exhibit together, you don't have to do anything to it, <laughs> whereas right. the plants have to keep being tended. Yeah. You know, and... It's one of the one of the pieces of Seed Savers Exchange that I um, am really just in awe of. You know, with a collection of nearly twenty thousand different varieties. I mean, we have seeds that have you know stories that come from all over the world. And one of the things that's really important to you know to the work of Seed Savers Exchange um, is identifying you know the the history of a lot of those places. I mean, we have seed historians on on site here whose full-time work is to be able to learn the story of the stewardship of these seeds and where they came from and how they came to the United States and how they were, you know, how the, how they were used and, and where they moved through the generations. You know, we, um, you know, the, the heirloom seed project is, you know, as I had, or uh, collard project, as I had mentioned, you know, something where we were identifying varieties, uh, you know, with these other organizations. Some of the varieties came from, you know, from our collection. Um, you know, we're doing, working with the in, Indigenous Seed Keepers Network also through some rematriation work, looking at, you know, varieties that we have in our collection um, that are uh, from Indigenous communities throughout the United States and working to be able to, you know, bring these back into, you know, into the hands of the folks that had stewarded these for centuries. Um, and so, you know, with a, a team of 13 people working within our preservation department, there is an incredible amount of work that is being done to be able to, to do the sorts of things that you're talking about, um, not only to bring them in, to have, make sure that they're stewarded, to understand the stories, but then also working to be able to get those seeds out of our collection and into the hands of home gardeners and communities uh, of people where uh, where they're they're safest. I mean, that's that's really the piece, right? I mean, it's it's important to be able to to literally have the seed um, in a you know and and safe in a seed bank. 
but really this idea of like participatory conservation, right? To be able to have these in people's gardens growing is is the best place that they can be. And so that's why we work so hard to be able to connect, you know, with home gardeners across the country uh, to be able to share these stories, the importance of of this, you know, diverse agricultural um, seed that we have, and and to be able to have them, you know, grow them in their own gardens. One of the things that I really like about your catalog, which I I use as a um, well, I, I use it for many things, but when you read about food. Uh, in historic cookbooks, in old journals, or even in novels where people are talking about cooking, often the the way the food is described by whatever name it was called at the time is not something that is necessarily familiar. Um, I know that one of the things that I was following was a big discussion of ladyfingers and um, of course, ladyfingers are a kind of a, a cookie, and that has one one whole way of going down. But these were not. This was not being described as a cookie. This was something else. And so there was this big question that someone had: is what could this be? I don't understand what it is. And so I was saying, well, I think those are okra. And so then we started looking up Ladyfinger Okra and uh, Pink Ladies and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, so th- then that's, I'm sure that's what it was referencing in the, in this book. But um, I-, I love that. I love that all of that changes. The names of things change. And um, uh, just knowing that those things still exist even if they're not being sold at the grocery store, is also really reassuring. And also, I, I interviewed someone from the, the Meloton, uh, Meloton.org, which okay. is saving Meloton from all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really fun. And it's basically the same thing that you're talking about. They put out the call, who wants to grow these so that right. we can multiply them and... They, they could be totally lost, especially after we've had these floods where the whole crop is gone. And then if you don't have any more, it's, it's really dangerous. So we're trying to, I know that they are trying to expand the places where things are being grown so that if there's a disaster in one place, it won't mean the end of that particular plant. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the, it makes me think of one of the things that we're doing as an organization, we have a community science program where we work with home gardeners all over the country. And one of them is, is called our ADAPT program. And we work with, we've got, you know, over 800 participants, uh-huh. home gardeners that we, uh, we pull seeds from, from our collection um, that is identified through, through some of the staff in our preservation department. And, and these seeds are sent out to home gardeners uh, all over, and we use an app-based system to be able to, uh, to interact with those gardeners so that they can do evaluations of, of how well you know, these crops are doing in the different environments. Uh-huh. Um, and so we can, you know, some places will be, you know, 
drier and some places will have heavy rains and others will have higher humidity. And I mean, there are all sorts of environmental factors, right, that um, that are in different people's gardens. And, and so getting that feedback of, you know, say, you know, two or three different types of melon that are in, you know, 300 different gardens. Right. And we can say, you know, here's the shape and the size and the issues with disease and, uh, you know, and some of these things that, um, you know, are going to be different every year and in different people's gardens, we have the ability to be able to start, start to identify how well crops are doing. And if we find that, you know, we've got a bunch of people that are like, oh, wow, this, you know, this specific type of tomato is incredible, right? Then we can use that information to be able to um, help work to, to filter things out of our, out of our collection and into our catalog. Because like I said, you know, we've got, you know, over 18,000 varieties in our, you know, in our seed bank, only about 623 varieties that are in our, that are in our catalog. Mm -hmm. And so finding ways to be able to engage home gardeners in a really robust way um, is, has, has been really rewarding, I think, for, for the organization and allows us to be able to, to better steward, you know, all of these things that we have, uh, have here on site in Iowa. So I've also been doing some work with the uh, Department of Agriculture in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and I know that you're working with those folks too, aren't you? Working with the various U.S. Department of Agriculture, with universities and and state departments of agriculture. We do, yeah, we do. I mean, a, a varied amount of work. I mean, and so recently we just received a you know a USDA SARE grant. Um, for, uh, well, the pre, the rematriation work that I was talking about previously, but we just received another, another grant. Um, <clears throat> in addition to the seeds that we have here, we have two historic or- orchards, you know, with almost, um, you know, a thousand fruit trees, mostly apples. And, um, and so through that rematriation work, we're identifying, uh, apple varieties that are, um, you know, had been stewarded by indigenous communities and, and helping with uh, with three different sites to be able to reintroduce orchard varieties or uh, apple varieties into, into orchards. Um, and so that's a really exciting kind of project just coming down the, the pipeline that we're working on, uh, which has been great. Um, in addition to that, yeah, I mean, we work with, uh, you know, the Svalbard um, in Norway, right, where we mm-hmm. we send seeds there every every year. Um, you know, there's also a, a bank in uh, Colorado. We send seeds there from our collection uh, on an annual basis as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's many layers to the to the work that we're doing. And so, are all these seeds kept in a freezer? Uh, here specifically in uh, at our site. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean we have. Um, yeah, we have a freezer that is set at zero degrees, um, whereas our our true, you know, kind of collection point. And then we also have multiple other um, kind of storage areas. So we have, um, you know, another cooler that is set for uh, collection varieties that are, um, that we have enough seed of for distribution. So through the exchange. And so people can request seed varieties through the exchange and, and those are set up. And so then we're, you know, you know, every year we're identifying, you know, somewhere between, you know, two and 400 varieties in that collection that we're regenerating here on our, on our property. Again, we've got about 900, 890 acres. Um, and so a lot of that is in conservation, um, but a portion of that land is used to be able to regrow our collection varieties, some for our commercial catalog, and then um, 
have, you know, some of that is uh, evaluating germination, you know, germination levels. Some of that is seed increases that we need if we, you know, have sent out so many distributions and we need to replenish that, we will do a seed increase there. Some of it is for lot checks and, and evaluations and some of it's for display gardens too. So we're open to the public. We get, you know, almost 14,000 people that come here a year. We've got nine miles of hiking trails. Um, and there's, there's, there's lots to, to see and do here for sure. So are you keeping all kinds of seeds like flowers as well as um, fruits and vegetables? Yep. Yeah. There are a lot of, a lot of flower varieties and, and garden crops. Yep. Okay. So what, if somebody's interested and they want to learn more, tell us what they can do, what's possible for them to do that's active other than just write a check or read the seed catalog? What kinds of opportunities are there for people who are interested? Yeah, so I would say, so seedsavers.org is our website. There is a wealth of information there. Um, You know, I would absolutely say become a member because with a membership and there's all different levels at which you can become a member, there's a digital version and, you know, so on and so forth. But it is really the best way to be able to stay up to date on the things that we're, that we're doing. We've got quarterly publications that come out that tell about some of the, you know, the work that we're currently doing, work that we're, you know, soon to be doing um, and, and talking about, you know, opportunities for engagement. Um, In addition to that, if you go on to, um, there's a tab on our website that talks about, you know, our community science uh, work. And so if you're interested in that ADAPT program that you heard about, uh, we've got a, a program that's also called Renew that's looking at helping to be able to um, to regenerate a seed that we would send out, you would grow out, and then that could come back to us as that kind of seed increase. Um, there's an opportunity there and there's information on how to, how to engage. Um, as well as, I mean, uh, I mean, COVID kind of changed things, but we had been having an annual conference and camp out here on site um, that will be virtual again this year. We have a seed school that we do if people are really interested in just learning the basics of, you know, what it means to to seed save or to save seeds and how you would seed save, save seeds. Um, that is something that, you know, that you would have an opportunity to be able to figure out how to engage in. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for learning. We do a, a tremendous amount of education, whether that be, you know, here on site or or virtually. So I would just say explore there. And if you have questions, you know, call, reach out. And so is there anything that is new on the horizon that you're planning that you haven't really made public yet? Oh, um, I don't know. This is the opportunity to make it public. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, you know, part of the part of the challenge, right, of, you know, being, uh, you know, new to a role in an organization that has such history and such values and is doing incredible work is, you know, I have a lot of ideas, but I'm also learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think one of the things that is not not really new, but I feel like is really important to focus on moving forward is really just the idea of, you know, just collaborating more um, Mm -hmm. and and really figuring out what it looks like to be able to steward seeds um, at a larger level, thinking about how we work with contract growers 
right, to be able to help us to, to produce some of the larger volumes of seed. But, you know, what would it look like to really be able to create a program that allowed people to, you know, to develop through this journey of being a seed keeper, right? Whether they're a home gardener, what does it look like to become a home gardener that wants to kind of take a step to a next level? And where could you go from there, you know, to, to thinking about um, really, you know, as we're looking at, you know, as a, as a market gardener, right, who'd been, you know, farming since, you know, for the last 13 years, um, and inflation changes things, markets have changed, COVID has changed things, right? What would it look like to be able to, um, you know, have seed, seed saving and seed production as an enterprise on a small diversified farm? And thinking about, so that whole journey, right? What, is, what does that look like? And what could we do to be able to facilitate the learning uh, and have, you know, educational touch points along the way? Um, that's something that is, you know, that's work that is being done, um, and, but I would love to see kind of be taken to an, a, another level. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation and good luck in your new position. Thank you so much. Thank you for reaching out. And I really appreciate any opportunity to be able to talk about the work that we're doing. So I, I appreciate, appreciate your willingness to do that. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.